Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast, a show in which we talk about anything and everything to do with migration, with me, your host, Loxan Harley. Today, we are lucky to have with us Katie Barwise from the International Organization for Migration, IOM, European Regional Office, to talk about her and IOM's mission to mainstream migration into international cooperation and development which broadly means taking into account the migration linkages within international development assistance or aid programs and projects. Now, if that still sounds like Greek or Chinese to you, don't worry, because we'll explain all that very shortly. Now, Katie is an unbelievably sharp and worldly program manager who, before joining IOM Brussels in 2017, spent 12 years with IOM in South Africa, Zambia, Mozambique and Australia covering the Pacific during that time, she developed and managed projects in migration and health, diaspora engagement, labor, migration, migration governance, migration and climate change, and community development. Katie holds a master's degree in international studies and diplomacy, and an undergraduate degree in African history, both from the School of Oriental and African Studies of the University of London, which is, in my completely unbiased view, wink wink, um, a fantastic school. And it's because of this rich and varied background that she is the ideal person to talk to during this episode about the linkages between migration and development and the linkages between migration and different development sectors. Uh, and by the way, when we say development sectors, we're talking about areas of work within international development, like education, health, uh, rural development, environment and climate change and so on. And it's worth mentioning here that part of Katie's brief at IOM is also to provide technical assistance and capacity building to strengthen policy coherence between migration and development policies, in particular in the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals and the 2030 Agenda on Sustainable Development. And just as a quick disclaimer, I've, I've worked as a consultant to Katie's project for a good year and a half um, in, in the past, 2017-2018, and uh, that may explain why I've framed some questions in the way that I have. Uh, it also explains how I know how important the work Katie and her team are engaged in. You know, there are so many linkages between migration, development and different sectors. And this episode really tries to unpack those linkages while talking about how you can, how you build that recognition of migration and development linkages into individual development projects. I encourage you to pay close attention to the opening of this interview where we talk through some of Katie's own amazing migration experiences, including her time as a migrant entrepreneur herself in Zambia. And stay tuned till the end as well, where I quiz Katie on the linkages between migration and health, migration and rural development, and migration and uh, environment and climate change. As always, thank you so much for listening, and feel free to reach out via the website, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. I'd really love to hear from you. Katie, welcome to the show. How are you Thank doing you. and and where how are you doing and where are you calling in from? I'm doing I'm doing good, thanks. I'm calling in from Brussels. Um a, a grey day here. Um and uh, you know, a little bit of, of unease um vis-a-vis -vis coronavirus, but um in general things are things are pretty good, thanks. Uh, yeah, cool, cool. And the is the whole IOM Brussels office working from home at the moment? No, no, we're working, um, you know, 40% actually in the office at the moment. So some days mm. in, some days, some days out. Um, yeah, so we'll yeah. see. And how has the transition been for the team going from well, offline to partially online? Um, the team has been, you know, it's has been fantastic. To be honest, it's been a pretty smooth transition. We found that, you know, with the technology we have, it's actually been pretty easy to, to make that move. Um, managed to work to get a lot of work done. And we were all very productive during during the lockdown. Um, so yeah, I think that side of things has gone really well. And uh, everyone's been pleasantly surprised at how easily that's worked. <laughs> very good, very good. Good to hear. Uh, okay, and uh, now I know I wanted to ask a bit about you and for our listeners to get to know you a bit better. And I, I always start by asking the, um, my guests about their own migration story. 
And so, you know, I know you've, you've been around a bit. And, um, uh, I wanted to ask, you know, about, about your journey. So can you, t- can you share, share with us a bit that journey? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, uh, I mean, I was born and grew up in London. So I lived for, in London pretty much for 25 years, the first 25 years of my life. Um, Poor thing. With, yeah, well, wasn't so bad. <laughs> The odd trip to, I went, I spent some time in Morocco on my gap year, and then I I lived in Brighton for a bit, which is kind of very close to London anyway. Um, But, uh, (laughs) yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, and then when I was 25, I um, packed up and went to live in South Africa. Um, I went to do an internship actually with UNHCR, and what was meant to be a three month internship. ended up being, I haven't, I still haven't moved back to the UK. Um, and that was quite a long time ago. Um, so yeah, I, through the, that internship, I ended up meeting the IOM team in, in then uh, our regional office in Pretoria, um, started working there on a um, regional migration and health program. Um, and I worked on that for, for the next 10 years based in different countries. I was in South Africa, then I was in Zambia for four years, and then Mozambique for five years um, uh, and then uh, and then after that I actually moved to Australia um, for two years where I was covering the Pacific um, from the IOM office there and, and after that to Brussels so back to Europe after a, um, over a decade away. Very very exciting and diverse array of, of experiences there and I wanted to ask as well or ask if you could share share a bit about that Zambia experience because one of the things that I recall from our conversations together is is some of the cool things you did there such as running a restaurant in (laughs) Lusaka and I just wondered if you could share a little bit about that because uh, I think it's quite rare in a way for especially you know UN folks development folks to have had that 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 experience, I mean, you know, there's there's obviously challenges and and various uh, specificities to the experience of going and working in inverted commas in the field. But I think doing doing business, doing something very private sector orientated, uh, is something I don't know quite unique about your experience. I was wondering what you could tell us about that briefly. Yeah, it's funny that you pick up on that. Um, no, so I, actually, uh, so in Zambia, um, I was fortunate enough to meet my my now husband there, um, and uh, his background. He was there. He was he set up an NGO working with um, with young people to on entrepreneurship skills and kind of access to finance and things like that. Um, and he also happens to be Mexican American. He's from El Paso, Texas, and. Um, one of the one of the funny things we have a lot of American friends um, and uh, Americans who live away will, will always talk about Mexican food. You know, there's this kind of nostalgia and longing for, for good Mexican food. Um, and so we kind of put put some of our interests together and some of our, um, uh, you know, uh, let's say being a bit opportunistic in terms of this uh, gap in the market there were no of course of course no Mexican restaurants in Zambia at the time um, and decided to set up a a um, kind of sustainable enterprise um, Mexican restaurant Um, so it was kind of we uh, grew a lot of our own products that were made in the restaurant Um, we had young people that were part of um, this program, this entrepreneurship program and, and training program come and, um, you know, they were working in the restaurant um, and, uh, you know, given kind of mentoring and coaching uh, uh, through that process. Um, and it was also really fun. We, we all had a really good time. Um, and, you know, it was a really, really interesting experience in terms of kind of actually trying to look at sustainable models um, for these kinds of businesses, because really, you know, these are the kinds of things that, you know, essentially we need to be, you know, we need to be focusing on from a sustainable development perspective. Um, So yeah, um, that was a good time. Uh, Yeah. And that's, that's, well, that's a beautiful story, especially because, you know, it has elements of your, your spouse being a, a Mexican American diaspora, yeah, and yourselves being migrant entrepreneurs. And it provides a good segue as well into the linkages between migration and development, which is what we're talking about today. So tell me now about your 
current role and the my mainstreaming migration into cooperation and development program which is a bit of a mouthful yeah of course um so yeah i mean as you know we, we've um, worked together on this but right now i'm here in brussels in working in the iom office um working on this initiative called mainstreaming migration into international cooperation and development um we it's really an initiative to develop um to support dg devco but also other development cooperation agencies what is dg devco for the dg devco uh, sorry yeah um, the, the EU's development cooperation branch. Um, uh, so for the Brits out there, the kind of DFID equivalent, you could say. Um, yeah, or now it's the FCDO equivalent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the FCDO equivalent. Um, but so the, the, the um, Directorate General responsible yeah. for development assistance um, in, in the EC. So yeah, we're, we're working with them. And you know, what they ha um, very rightly um, I guess pinpointed is that there's migration is obviously increasingly on the political agenda um, and there's a lot of uh, interest um, in bringing migration into programming in particular in different development sectors um, and so what we're trying to do under this is kind of have a bit more of a systematic approach for how that's done but really to to um, develop and and roll out very operational tools to really support people to program do programming around that um, so there's generally quite a good understanding of um, how migration works in your given context where you're working and, and what that means for development but what people really are crying out for is operational tools and support for, for what that means in terms of on the ground work and so that's what we're really focusing on here Okay, great. And and to put that in in concrete terms, when you talk about tools, what are you actually developing? So the main um, kind of umbrella is that we're developing this set of guidelines, guidelines for integrating migration into international cooperation development. We use the term integrating rather than mainstreaming because we've noted that there's a sort of mainstreaming fatigue that we face, that everyone's facing. Um, we've, been, we've, we've been told many times, oh no, I have, to, I have to mainstream another thing, you know, on top of everything yeah. else I have to mainstream. So, you know, we've changed that language a little bit, but so this, these guidelines um, have then various different uh, tools attached to them, I suppose. Um, so there's an overall set of guidelines and then there's a set of toolkits on specific development sectors, um, nine development sectors that we've identified with uh, DG Devco and, and other development corporation actors as being kind of the priority sectors. Um, in those toolkits, we have various bits and pieces, but what they're really doing is following the programming cycle, getting very technical, but the, the um, you know, starting with your yeah, context analysis and situational analysis and moving around to programming. So define, defining your projects um, and programs and then through monitoring and then evaluating and then back into, into programming. So we've got different tools for each set, each time timing in, in that cycle. Um, and that's very much reflecting, you know, what we had heard from, um, from the end users, um, which is basically people who are based in development contexts who want to more accurately bring migration into their different pieces of work, that, that's really reflecting what they said they needed, is these, these sorts of tools. Very interesting. And it sounds like a very important initiative because, I mean, it's all in the vein of trying to get greater, achieve greater coherence between different aid programs, right? I mean, um, and we're going to talk about the linkages in a, in a moment between migration and development and why why we, we need more coherence but i wanted to touch on that word mainstreaming i mean you you just mentioned it yourself you're moving more towards the the term in, integrating and and i think that's a great idea because mainstreaming is a bit more it seems like a bit of a buzzword and i say that a bit flippantly because i think sometimes very important processes like gender mainstreaming are often reduced to a bit of a, a buzzword type thinking, you know, check, ticking boxes and so on. So I wanted to address that head on. I mean, what 
I think most people would be familiar with the term gender mainstreaming. So what what would be the difference between gender mainstreaming and then integrating migration into development? Yeah, I mean, I think that, as you said, you know, the, the, the term mainstreaming has had a bit of a bad rap. And I think that it's something that when you work, I mean, we use it in development. When you use the term outside development, people really switch off. Um, but using it in development, you know, it, it, people switch off to some extent. Um, and what we need to make sure is that we don't lose the what it means. Um, so we get past the use of that language. Um, and there's very well defined, there's better defined systems now for for gender mainstreaming and there's been a lot of work for instance done by UN women um but also you know other other UN agencies on what gender mainstreaming looks like in terms of disaggregation and in terms of um you know gender responsive budgeting and things like that so really systematic things um that can be done um to, to really mainstreaming and get this kind of 360 um integration of those issues into whatever you're doing um with what we're talking about with integrating migration, the first thing is to say, you know, on the terminology. And I think whenever we talk about migration, terminology is very important. Um, and so very often we have to start there because um, it really defines how we're moving forward with whatever we're doing. Um, and a lot of that is because migration terminology hasn't been terribly sort of codified, you know, in general. Um, but so the, the term integrating is, uh, taken from the uh, the Global Compact on Migration language, which under um, Objective 19, there's a one of the commitments under that objective is to, which is the, one of the development specific areas, is to integrate migration into um, national, uh, regional, global development plans, policies, programs, et cetera, et cetera, and sector plans and programs. So there it has some definition already um which is useful um it's also something that many governments obviously signed up to um and what what but there isn't you know where, where what it means to mainstream or integrate migration you know there's been bits and pieces there's there's been a process you know uh, of what that means undertaken through the gfmd the global forum on migration and development you know for for over a decade um I would say, you know, but it is still kind of, there's some flexibility there. Whereas we have kind of through mainstreaming of other issues, there's quite a um, systematized approach. Um, what we're doing is trying to say through asking a series of questions and taking a series of approaches, um, you will better reflect migration in what you're doing. Um, but it is not, you know, a kind of, uh, it is not a, just necessarily about sort of ticking certain boxes or doing certain activities. Um, and one of the reasons for that is of course, because it is incredibly context specific. So it's very hard to, um, you know, to say that the same thing, the same thing is relevant in every context. Yeah, very, very, very well put. And thanks, thanks for talking us through that. And, and I think that it's also worth mentioning as well that this is quite this is a demand driven project this is something that the european commission have asked for so it's something that you know and it's great to see that increasing that increasing awareness about the linkages between migration and development yeah and absolutely i think i think the points you make as well about context specificity are also really important and valid too and that's why I'm, I'm very interested to hear in the future how how the piloting of all these tools go because I understand you're piloting them in a few countries. Um, that I think that leads us nicely onto the, the the why in all of this. So what what is the relationship or what are the linkages between between migration and development? Yeah, I mean it's also a little bit um, it's a very broad question, but I think um, uh, you know what has what has what has very much been understood um, at in global development policy, let's say, um, is that there is a, clearly a very strong um, economic argument for migration when migration is well managed. Um, and we have, you know, now lots and lots of data on kind of macroeconomic um, benefits of migration, um, a recent IMF report um, chapter specifically on this, um, uh, you know, 
which does kind of again highlight the you know GDP increases when with increased migration, et cetera, et cetera. We know that you know remittances, which you know the but what is transferred? You had you had another podcast on remittances, so I won't go into that. But we know Probably that episode uh, episode four, I believe it was. Thank you. Episode four, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, are obviously represent more um, you know potential uh, financial um, capital than uh, than ODA official development assistance, etc. So this kind of um, understanding of the ways in which uh, migration um, has a strong is, is uh, you know, has an a, can have a strong economic development impact has been quite well looked into. Um, what has been less, uh, you know, less thoroughly explored is, you know, the, the way like what what it means, what migration means in terms of, let's say, social and cultural development. Um, and then also this, uh, you know, more broad understanding of migration in the context of um, of, of sustainable development, and uh, you know what that means. And so there's a lot more coming out now, and a lot more work on that being done now. Um, so that's kind of where we get into this, um, you know, looking at different sectors and and looking at how um, you know migration can have a benefit for your development targets in different development sectors. Um, uh, through integrating or mainstreaming migration into your work. So to, at a kind of macro level, um, you know, you can look at sort of things like how um, the migration of, of um, migrant workers, for instance, can contribute to different, uh, different development outcomes. Um, you can look at the health sector, for instance, and this is something that's come out very strongly from, you know, under the, the current pandemic situation is kind of, and particularly in the global north, this is, you know, the role of, um, you know, health workers, uh, foreign-born health workers in the response, which is, you know, I think it's sort of in the US, 27% of doctors are, are foreign-born, um, you know, and that's, so migration contributing to health outcome, health it, from in a development perspective. At the same time, the same can be true for food security, and again, highlighted um, in, in the recent pandemic on that how uh, mobility restrictions, um, you know, were causing, that was causing problems for Europe's food supply. Um, at the same time, you know, where, you know, where I've worked and my background is, is a lot working in Southern Africa, um, it's a sort of much more um, everyday understanding of the way that migration, you know, contributes and, and links with development. So, um, you know, for years and years, we've had migrants uh, moving to South Africa to work on mines. Um, and, uh, you know, that has had a benefit, obviously, for South African economic growth. It's had, you know, a, a benefit for the, the mining companies themselves. Um, and, you know, in some ways, there's been benefits. In many ways, there's been benefits for countries of origin and, and communities of origin. Um, of course, the other aspect of it is that there are challenges that, um, you know, that, that can come with that migration when it is not well managed and when migrants' rights are not, um, you know, fully and effectively promoted and, and protected. Um, so where I was working, um, you know, in Mozambique, for example, we were doing a lot of work with, with the communities in which migrant mine workers originate, um, where there are very, very elevated levels of tuberculosis and HIV. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so which is linked to that migration um, and it's kind of complex how it is linked, which I won't go into now. Um, it's not a very, it's not a sort of simple causal relationship that, that one might assume. Um, but so, you know, the other aspect of the links with migration development is that we, we need to uh, ensure a, a, a certain, um, you know, level of protection um, in order to be able to harness those development benefits. And this is, this is really captured in the um, SDGs. There is a target in there um, under SDG 10, which is about reducing inequalities. There is a target 10.7, um, which calls on governments to um, promote safe, orderly and regular migration, essentially. Um, and that's kind of this understanding that if migration is safe, if it's orderly, if it's regular, then you know there will be very 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 strong development outcomes 
Thank you. I, I, I like to put my guests on the spot with very broad questions sometimes. And I think you handled that very, very well <laughs> and gave us a lot of food for thought and brought a lot of nuance into, into the debate as well. Uh, which is like, which I guess is what a lot of this is about, you know, trying to highlight the the so many linkages that there are between migration and and different different aspects of development. Maybe maybe just to add one thing, and what I said is, you know, we talk about um, you know the benefits of migration, economic benefits, and I think it is very very important that um, we also talk about the the rights and protection of um, people living in communities which are impacted by migration, and that's the other side. This, that's part of safe, orderly, and regular migration, and, and part of that, um, you know, is making sure that you have you know good, strong, um, effective social cohesion measures when places are um, impacted by by migration. Um, and then again, what you do tend to see is that there is an overall kind of um, economic benefit and, and the labor market can benefit in that sense. Of course, when it's not, when those measures aren't put in place, then there can be a negative impact on local labor markets, local service provision, et cetera. And so that's very much a part of this as well. And, and thinking about what the impact of migration is on non-migrants is, is mm. really important. Yeah, yeah, very, very good point. And I guess maximizing all the opportunities that come with migration while also addressing some of the challenges there too. Exactly. And uh, I wanted to also put it to you. I mean, I think mainstream views on the linkages between migration and development focus on how people move because of a lack of opportunity and livelihood options and how I think a lot of European, especially European migration policies and migration development policies talk about how we should, in, in higher income countries, provide aid to support lower income countries to, to address the root causes of migration and st or stop people or give people less reason to migrate. I mean, how, how, does, uh, how do the, the guidelines fit in or, or not fit into that? How, do, how does your project fit in or not fit into that? Um, and is the relationship as simple as that? You know, do people move just because uh, they don't have livelihood options? You know, a lot of this thinking is and terminology about root causes. They do talk about addressing the root causes of irregular migration and forced displacement, not just migration overall. And there is obviously a big difference. We tend to see people's experiences of migration when it's irregular people would be more in need of protection, et cetera, et cetera. So that is an important distinction to make. I think that, you know, where our guidelines fit in is what we're saying is coming from a, you know, the perspective of the development, what we want and what development assistance is for is, is to harness and facilitate development, sustainable development. And so these guidelines are really coming from the perspective that this is how we can help facilitate that. And if you're coming, if you're working in specific sectors, you can use these guidelines to assist with bringing migration into your programming to help meet your targets. And those targets are essentially, you know, defined in, in the 2030 agenda and the SDGs and various other global frameworks. So I think that's where we're coming in from. And the, the whole kind of way that we can effectively use development assistance is to really look at where the, this nexus of migration and development is enacting or manifesting. And so to, to use these sorts of tools and guidelines to assist with addressing that nexus there. I, I think I've noticed as well from my own experience working on migration and development, that there are a range of widely held beliefs which, which just don't match the data. And I, I just kind of described one just then, that there's this quite linear relationship between development and migration in, in, in the sense that when there's less development, people move. And I understand that as part of this project and as part of the tools you're developing, you, you've been doing some work on migration and development myths. So I was wondering if you could share with us your favorite migration and development myths. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of mythology. I think that probably for me, you know, the, the biggest myth that we see time and time again is that you know migration is one of the greatest challenges of this era um and um you know i think that that's that's kind of inaccurate on many levels partly um of course we haven't really seen net migration you know relative to population size 
particularly increase, you know, over the last decades. So there hasn't, there isn't this kind of massive increase in migration that that, that kind of myth would would uh, imply. Um, but also the the really this predominant narrative of migration as a challenge. Of course, most migration is regular. Most migration is, um, you know, uh, well managed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think particularly since 2015, this narrative has really been pervasive. Um, and uh, yet, um, you know, there's, it's, there's many different perspectives where this isn't the case. Um, and of course, a lot of migration is also taking place between uh, um, least developed countries, for example, and middle income countries. Um, not all migration is to the global north. Um, and then when it comes to, of course, refugee hosting, um, you know, the um, uh, emerging economies, et cetera, are hosting many, many more refugees than, than countries in the global north. I think that there is a positive from this, which is there's an indication that public opinion on this, public perceptions of migration are, are um, bringing, putting migration in a more positive light, you know, so that, that is improving. Um, and I think that's a very big opportunity for, um, you know, addressing this myth. Um, and what we need is, uh, you know, we need to kind of sort of make sure that we hammer in on some of these facts, make sure we hammer in on some of this data um, to, to challenge this myth. But it's a really important one. Um, and so that, I think, is probably the biggest myth that, that you know, I would see in, in this field. Yeah, and and I, one reason also why I like to ask my guests on this show to share their own migration stories is to normalize migration and to also make people in 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 let's say quote unquote global north for want of a better term to reflect on the different reasons why people move, you know, because we always focus so much on livelihood opportunities and on moving somewhere moving to richer countries to to get good incomes which which does sidestep a lot of the other reasons the many reasons and and diverse reasons which can be held simultaneously for why people make a decision to move and um now i wanted to move on to the i guess again looking at why why we're doing all of this i know that you know, donors, development donors, development cooperation agencies are one of the target audiences uh, for, for these guidelines or the main target audience uh, for, for all the tools that you're developing. So, you know, what, what are they doing currently? You know, what are you trying to change exactly? You know, what are you doing currently and what are you hoping will change through this program? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of um, donors, a lot of development agencies are increasingly recognizing um, the role of migration in their development programming. And this is a really good thing. You know, I was working um, in this, uh, you know, well, for many years, but during the time of the Millennium Development Goals, for instance, where there really wasn't any mention of migration. And really, when you talked about migration, you know, in, in let's say, coordination, development cooperation mechanisms at country level etc it was sort of seen as something that was you know maybe an issue of protection yes um you know protecting vulnerable migrants or migrants in vulnerable situations for instance victims of trafficking things like that um was very important but this whole kind of the broad nexus was really very much underexplored in in formal development policy and programming and so what that is that is really changing, and this is a this is a huge opportunity, and, and obviously linked to the 2030 agenda as well, and a lot of work that's been done around that. Um, but so what we see is that different different development cooperation agencies have you know have their own approach to to what this means, um, and so what you know through these guidelines, what we hope we can do is provide some more kind of um, consistency and coherence in, in terms of how this, this is approached. Like I say, it's very, very difficult because it's very difficult to put, um, you know, to say that one, if something works in one place, it will work in another place. And that's for a multitude of reasons. And that's the case with development in general. Um, but with migration, it's particularly difficult because you know, coming back to this terminology as well, you know, migration, it takes many different forms. When, when I say migration, I'm also talking about, you know, forced displacement, for instance, it's not 
always the case that all partners are. Um, and so even from that starting block, um, you know, some of that language and terminology, you know, is, is inconsistent. Um, so what that means then for as you're moving forward with programming um, makes a difference. If you're doing a situational analysis where you're wanting to find out what the migration dynamics are in a certain place, you need to know what you mean by migration dynamics. Um, these are some of the things that, you know, we, we, we would really aim to address. So really this kind of, and, and this obviously con contributes then to this policy coherence. Um, so everything that we're doing is very much in line with, with different policy frameworks. So for instance, the, the, the work we're doing on the urban development side, you know, borrows and is in line with the new urban agenda. Um, and this is obviously also aligned with the SDGs. And these are, these are, um, these are frameworks that all governments have kind of, uh, you know, signed up to as it were. Um, so about, this is about bringing this, you know, into a, an operational um, level and, and saying, this is what, what it means to, to bring this in and to, to then, you know, be aligned with these frameworks and ensure kind of some coherence across the board on these issues. Yeah, very interesting. And I, I would say as well, and I, I asked you this question, but of course, uh, you know, I'm, I did the research uh, on on what the actors are doing currently, what the donors are doing currently. Yeah. And I remember <laughs> I was being, I was quite, I was, I was pleasantly surprised with how advanced some countries were with their approaches to trying to integrate migration into their, you know, the development aid, development assistance programming and projects, you know, and I would point out, for instance, you know, Germany, Germany, France, UK, Switzerland, we're all taking some, some pretty interesting approaches. You know, yeah. I, remember, I think Germany, Germany, uh, at least through, through GIZ and BMZ, their development apparatus, you know, they had some migration specialists that would advise different teams on their development programs, you know, development programs in other development sectors. Uh, I think I remember you know, France, the Agence Française de Développement has a migration focal point who, who's also doing a similar thing and plugging into different teams and bringing that, that coherence that we've, that we've described. Mm -hmm. And I guess some of this is also giving the tools to them so that they can do it in a bit more of a systematic and a bit more of a structured way. Because I did mm -hmm. find from that experience researching that, and comparing those countries that they did have, they were taking some very interesting approaches, mm -hmm. but they weren't always particularly structured or they were kind of nascent and they mm -hmm. were still making the case internally. So I think very it's much really, so. really valuable work that yeah. you're doing. And, yeah, and you know, as uh, you mentioned, so yeah, DFID of course um, has a similar, has had a similar approach um, and, you know, SDC also, um, yeah. And I think the, the you did that, um, you were working on, on that as for us and again you know that finding was that there was a lot of um interest in in these tools for that very reason it's very much recognized that this is important um and going back to what i said at the beginning you know these age development cooperation partners recognize how important it is um and you know aren't necessarily needing much more on the theory or the evidence um, from a kind of macro perspective, but are really wanting these tools. So we've also kind of, you know, yeah, we've 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 heard from a lot of agencies on 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 these tools. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just to also make this a bit more a bit more concrete, I think we've talked about this in in sort of abstract terms that I guess development folks like ourselves can get. But I was wondering if you could talk us through a few examples, concrete examples of how migration can be integrated into a policy, a program or a project. <laughs> to try not to get too bureaucratic, <laughs> because sometimes, well, sometimes it can be quite, um, you know, a sort of bureaucratic process to integrate migration into a policy itself. Um, but I think, you know, what, Going back to what I talked about before is that this, the, the, the approach that we're talking about is, um, is, is one where you follow a certain methodology and then apply it to different, different situations. I think I can give you an example now, which is we're, we're, we're analyzing um, the climate action of the EU um, 
from a migration perspective. And so that here in the EU, that one of the key policy frameworks is the, the EU, the Green Deal, um, which is bringing together lots and lots of different, um, different strategies, policies, legislative provisions, et cetera, um, to, you know, with the view of transforming to a, a zero carbon economy, um, you know, incrementally. Um, and uh, really kind of completely overhauled the, the, the European economy in that sense. And to do that, you know, we've, you kind of, you there's a sort of initial analysis, of course, of, of everything that's coming out um, and looking at, you know, asking, there's the primary question is, okay, is there, are migrants considered? Is migration considered? Is displacement considered? Um, and that's pretty easy to do. Um, so the first step is just to kind of go through the kind of simple, are these things included? Um, the second thing is to say, okay, if so, how, and if not, you know, how, um, and that's where our, you know, our tools can really help is through looking at what some of the key questions can be when you're trying to understand, um, you know, what that kind of systematic and broad inclusion of migration might be. One of the very simple questions you ask whenever you're looking at anything is, um, who are the target groups and beneficiaries? Is it citizens of a specific country or region or whatever it might be? Or is it people in that territory? You know, because there is a huge implication of if you're doing something for people in a territory or if you're doing something for citizens. Um, and when you're talking about, you know, uh, such high numbers of, of um, international migrants, it, it particularly in some countries and, you know, so, yeah, for instance, some cities that we're talking about in the global north, uh, you know, they're 20 percent foreign foreign born residents, let's say, um, or foreign born people. And so if the work of that city is only for, you know, citizens of, of that you know, city um, nationals of that country, then you're, you're losing a lot of the population. And that's not just from a sort of rights perspective that that's because that will that will affect that will um, impact your effectiveness. So in coming back to this Green Deal, um, you know, one of, the, one of the really interesting aspects is that there will be this, um, you know, reskilling of um, the workforce working in traditional fossil fuel economies, et cetera, um, fossil fuel sectors, um, and uh, a change in how agricultural agriculture works, um, which is captured in this farm to fork strategy. We know that a huge you know, number of the workers in these industries are migrant workers. So what's, what does that mean? There's a huge opportunity there for reskilling migrant workers, also for, of course, attracting talent from outside um, to, you know, you know, to help with this digital, this, not digital, this green transition. Um, and so you're kind of, so you need to make sure the migrants the migrants who are working in these economies aren't going to kind of be left behind. Um, at the same time, you, you can use that. You can, there's a huge kind of um, opportunity for, for, for working with those workers and, and you know, making sure that um, they're, you know, their rights protected and, and they are able to contribute to this change. Yeah, thanks. Very, very, very helpful example there. Helps us get, get closer to the topic. And just to throw in another example that comes to not comes to my mind, a lot of development cooperation agencies, their country offices will do an initial assessment when they're determining their programming. So what areas they mm -hmm. will focus their aid activities on. And at that time, they look at a range of, of, of contextual factors. You know, they look at different aspects of development, poverty, income, house, they, they might do household surveys or, um, you know, draw from, from various data that's available from the government and publicly. And one thing they can do is do a quick migration, some sort of quick analysis of the migration situation as well, which, which you've developed tools for. So that can help them to identify, you know, if, if there is a high number of, of migrants, high number of migrant workers, high number of displaced persons, that can help them to then, that can help the development cooperation agencies to then better focus and adapt their assistance to what's actually needed. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just um, and this is, yeah, I mean, this is really the, the structure of the tools that we're using. Um, 
And I think, you know, you, it's one of the things that have come out through the process of developing these is that, of course, this is very applicable in other contexts as well. And so, you know, for instance, in the UN context in countries with the UN, you know, UN country team follows a similar process of identifying priorities and, and then having this kind of country plan. So identifying the priorities are identified in a common country analysis, it's called, and then they develop these UN sustainable development frameworks, sustainable development cooperation frameworks, which used to be called the UNDA. Um, and so our tools have are also can be used during that common country analysis. We have this situational analysis tool and you can use that. So to identify the data sources, um, identify, you know, the with a stakeholder analysis tool. So really kind of, again, just giving some of that guidance on how you can get the information and who you should be talking to, some of the questions that you should, you should be asking um, during that stage. And then of course, moving around the, the cycle. I think monitoring and evaluation are also very important uh, entry points for whether it's monitoring and evaluation of a, of a kind of macro policy, like we talked about the European Green Deal, but also of a, of a sustainable development cooperation framework. Um, we have checklists that you can ask to make sure that migration would kind of effectively integrated. And if not, then you come back to your situational analysis and look what the needs are. And I think one of the really important things, again, is to that each of these things you, you, you need to contextualize it there. There are some ca cases where, you know, it's just not going to be relevant to ask questions about, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of something that wouldn't be relevant. <laughs> Migration is obviously so relevant in all contexts, um, but some aspects won't be so relevant in some contexts. Um, and so it's really about also kind of using that initial tool to then inform each tool informs the next one as you move along so it's, it's this very iterative process that we think we hope will kind of help you know throughout those those phases yeah yeah i also see it a little bit as a process of training that that muscle to to you know understand the linkages and then you know to know what to do so Get, getting into the habit of thinking about migration when it's necessary to do so right like yeah you know, how, yeah absolutely like we all have our morning routines you know i get up wash my face i make breakfast i brush my teeth i start i check my emails so you know that that i do pretty much on autopilot so hopefully yeah development corporation agencies will develop that muscle and do this pretty much on autopilot as well um and i wanted to ask as well well, you kind of started answering it, but I wanted to ask, you know, who else should be paying attention to the tools that you're developing? You know, these are, we've talked a lot about donors and development cooperation agencies. And then you just mentioned that they're also of relevance to, let's say, UN um, countries. Yeah. Are there any other actors, stakeholders, types of organizations that you think these tools that you're developing would be of use to? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, so. you know, Primarily, we're we're working with DG Devco on this, and I think you know it's you know there is excellent that they have really recognised and, and zoomed in on this area, and so and and through through DG Devco under their leadership, I suppose you know they they have you know there's there's interest from other development cooperation agencies that we talked about, um, and this is the primary this is the way they're designed. So if you you know some of the language, for instance, is quite specific to development cooperation actors in terms of the phases of the project cycle or in terms of your kind of let's say your constituents or your targets there might be different levels depending on your your role what kind of actor you are but having said that you know as i say very very much relevant in in other coordination mechanisms as well so of course you have kind of um sector-wide approaches in in many countries and you know so where you bring all the partners together development corporation government um you know other development partners ngos in some cases and um i think in those contexts they would also be very relevant um and then i think the other aspect so the way that these tools are designed is that they have a little bit of just general information about you know let's say a sector and migration um so in that general information section you have all your relevant um you know your relevant frameworks conventions um other kind of uh instruments that might be of interest you'll have some narrative you'll have some some facts about that those linkages um and then you'll have case studies of of 
uh, interventions that have kind of have worked or have attempted to work in this area um, and lessons learned, of course. And I think those are really relevant for everyone who everyone who for whom migration is um, for whom migration is something relevant to their work um, in and, um, you know, who are looking for just some further information. And I think case studies in particular are really, really useful for everyone. And we've got videos, by the way, on, on our YouTube channel of uh, different different projects and different human stories as well, where, where you know, where um, these, which bring all these issues together. Um, so that's on the IOM YouTube channel yeah, under we'll, Migration and Sustainable Development. We'll put a link to those in the in the show notes too. Great. Um, yeah, great. And I think as well, even if you're just doing, a, if you're working on a policy process, if you're developing a policy in a certain an area, like a or, or a national development plan or a rural development policy or education yeah. policy, you know, I think those tools can be really valuable in, in helping you to understand those linkages and then build those linkages, rec- that build that recognition of those linkages into yeah. whatever policy you're developing. So you know, I think it's useful for a lot of people. And I know you've also done so, I don't, I don't want to get too much into it because you, these can be found on your website, but I know you've also been doing work on the the, the migration aspects related to, you know, COVID-19 and, uh, and things like yeah. that. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, we've we've got a toolkit um, which is to support development partners um, in general to integrate migration into the socioeconomic response um, to COVID-19. So this particular stream of the socioeconomic aspects as kind of separated a bit from the health and the humanitarian um, response, Um, although all are interlinked, I should say. Um, So yeah, I mean, what what we saw, what we found is that the methodology, which you're, you know, you've had a key role in in developing this methodology um, is really, really useful um, for, you know, for end users to get this kind of snapshot because people don't have much time. And so having kind of these these short, um, you know, very operational tools, very practical tools has, has been particularly helpful. So we really applied that to the COVID situation. And, and that's a living document as well. We're, we're learning all the time about what this means um, and how we can really um, try to use development assistance to, you know, support the response from the socioeconomic perspective and the recovery. Great. Yeah. And that, that gives me a quick opportunity to plug the previous episodes we've done on diaspora engagement and remittances, where we talk about some of the COVID uh, related um, impacts as well. And uh, OK, and before we close, I wanted to uh, do a quick fun game, uh, a, quick, uh, a quick fire quiz. And uh, I want to I'm going to name a sector for you, a development sector. So also just a side note, when we talk about sectors, we're talking about, I guess, an area of work within development. And well, that, sh- that should become clear through this quiz as well. But uh, I wanna, I'm going to name a sector and then you need to tell me, you know, a reason or two reasons why people working in that sector should think more about migration. Okay, are you ready? Got it. Got it. Uh, all right, we'll, we'll start with an e- easy one, uh, health. <laughs> well, this is my background. Um, so, I mean, of course, you know, my, migration is a social determinant of health. So if you want to achieve your health outcomes, um, which is, you know, better health in general, universal, universal health, um, you need to think about what in, you know, what aspects of migration are impacting people's ability to achieve those, you know, to, um, uh, you know, achieve those targets or have that kind of health uh, outcome. Um, so some of that is about uh, very often about access and about particularly removing barriers. So in a lot of countries, you know, non-nationals can't access health. In a lot of countries, health is very, very difficult to access anyway. So we talk about equitable access so that we make sure that there isn't a sort of specific barrier for, for non-nationals um, or migrants, you know, in some cases who aren't, uh, who are internal. Um, and then another aspect is, is on the, the on the demand side. So ensuring that there is a kind of you know community mobilization programs are, are specific to you know com- migration affected communities and what that means and there's specific health needs of those communities. Um, uh, but also because you, you could probably yeah. <laughs> you could probably do another podcast episode on that one. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, well, just I'm also going to have a stat a stat for each one. So on health in South Africa. 
almost uh, half or 48% of all confirmed malaria cases between 2001 and 2009 in one border province were found in migrants from Mozambique, according to IOM in 2013. Well, I can tell you because you see South Africa has kind of eliminated malaria from most outside of the border areas. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's very linked to, to border areas in, in South Africa. Great. We have a very good video um, about uh, in, set in South Africa on um, health and TB, it's, in particular programming on some of the farms in South Africa on our YouTube channel. Okay, okay great, great. <laughs> Um, well done for slipping that in there. Uh, okay, next one. This is quick fire round. Uh, rural, rural development. Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of rural development is impacted by migration, particularly from rural to urban areas in, in um, you know, low income, middle income countries. Um, and then sometimes there's onward migration internationally. Um, and so, you know, one of the big question marks is how can we, uh, you know, how, what, how do we program uh, do migration programming in the context of rural development so that we can um you know basically meet our rural development targets and ensure that there isn't this kind of uh degradation in rural areas and one of the other aspects that's interesting with rural development of course is rural areas um are very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change as are urban areas and, and environment environmental degradation and that has an impact on people's migration patterns I could go on as well. Yeah, no, great, great, great. Pass, you passed, you passed that one. Uh, and, and just as a stat, uh, and this, this stat goes back to 2008, but it's still interesting. In Bangladesh, an increase in household land owned by one consumption unit is correlated with a 95% decrease in temporary internal migration and also huge increases in permanent internal migration and, and in international migration as well. Um, okay, next, uh, last, next and last one, I will yeah. say uh, environment and climate change. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I, um, obviously there's, there's some kind of clear uh, links in terms of the migration, the environmental degradation. For instance, we talk a lot now about biodiversity loss and, um, you know, of course, climatic events um, as quote unquote drivers of migration, very hard to kind of pinpoint, you know, the precise point in which these become drivers rather than underlying factors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but certainly there is an impact of climate change and environment on people moving. And then I think an important aspect of this, and I worked in the Pacific for a while and it's very, very important there, um, is that also migration is a, an adaptation strategy for people and it can be a means of, you know, uh, it can be a means of, of adapting to climate change and that's really really important that we bear that in mind and the other aspect that i mentioned in the context of the green deal is how can how can migrants contribute to climate action what is the role of um you know uh migrants in in this transition to a green economy on the basis that migrant workers are so important economically in general um so i'll leave it at that <laughs> fantastic and uh, as a stat, in 2016, disasters caused the displacement of 24.2 million people, three times yeah. the number of people displaced by conflict in the same Absolutely. year. Absolutely, yeah. According to yeah. Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. Uh, yeah. 2.4 billion people in Asia live on floodplains and low-lying coastal zones. So, yeah, yeah your point about adaptation strategy is gonna, just going to become more and more relevant. We we also have a video on, on uh, uh, disaster risk reduction in um, Metro Manila in the Philippines and the, in, for, with urban migrants and, you know, how important it is uh, for that we bring in DRR programming for urban migrants um, in uh, contexts that are vulnerable to uh, disasters. Okay. And yeah. you have a YouTube channel, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Did I mention that? <laughs> um, brilliant. And okay. So last question is, you know, well, thank you very much for being on the show and you've been a, an amazing guest and, you know, you've given us so much food for thought. And I want to ask, you know, how can, how can listeners connect with you and connect with the project and, and learn more aside uh, other than going to the YouTube channel, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, so we are on, we have our website, uh, our, our web page, which is on, I'm trying to think what it is, it's on the, our, it's on the IOM Brussels, um, so yep. it's we'll EEA, yeah, 
Um, and then also we're on LinkedIn um, and, you know, we do various bits and pieces. Um, we've got an event coming up uh, at EU Green Week next week on the 21st of October about biodiversity and migration. Um, so you can find all the details for that on our website as well. I think this will probably be out post that but okay yeah that's <laughs> true catch up on the reports on that event yeah you can get, you can look at the recording yeah yeah and and uh you know just lastly what what are the, what are the next steps for this project you know when are things gonna when yeah like things coming out so we're early next year we're aiming to have the tools out and then the plan is to start really kind of um provide you know doing uh sort of roll out and operationalizing these tools so again get in touch if you're interested in any kind of support to um you know mainstreaming in these sectors you can find the nine sectors that we work in um on our web page um and uh yeah so if this rings a bell do get in touch fantastic yeah so it's um and and if people should people get in touch via the web page then uh yeah yeah all our or my details are there um okay yeah great we're on linkedin like i said as well so. okay yeah. brilliant that well again once again thank you so much for being on the show and uh, enjoy the rest of the day thanks you too good to speak to you thanks thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the migration and diaspora podcast if you've enjoyed it you can check out the podcast website at loxanharley.com forward slash podcast. There, you can subscribe to the mailing list or get in touch if you want to be on the podcast. Be sure to follow the podcast via your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review if you can. Thanks again and see you next time.